0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season finale of season one of Screen After Reading. I'm your host, Maureen Lee Linker, senior writer here at EW. And today we're shaking things up a bit, turning a new page on the podcast, because instead of diving into one particular adaptation this week, we're going to be talking about the art of adaptation broadly and more in general and just looking at favorites least favorites, books we'd like to see adapted for the screen and all that kind of good stuff. And joining me today to help me break all of that down is amazing EW critic Leah Greenblatt, who is our critic at large and reviews everything from film to theater to books, which is the reason why she's here today. Welcome, Leah.
1: Hello. I wish I had a middle name. So like you have a cool middle name. I don't have one at all.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. I uh, actually, funnily enough, started using my full name because I wanted to have my pen name just be Maureen Lee. But now the problem is that I've used my full name as my byline for so long that my agent said I should just continue using my full name. So it was a redundant experiment. Well, well done. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today. As I mentioned to our listeners, you are our esteemed literary critic. And so I couldn't think of anyone better to help me close out the season here talking about adaptation. First, like why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit more about your own background with adaptation, how you first fell in love with books and what made you want to review them? Oh boy,
1: I think I was kind of born a little bookworm. I'm one of those weirdos that reads the back of cereal boxes and like instructions for inflating pillows. Like literally if there are words in front of me, I'll 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 read them and I think that was just the kind of like strange child that I was. But um I do remember that I was reading a lot of trash as a young girl. I I, I had been drawn towards the Judith Crances and those kinds of novels when I was maybe eleven or twelve. And my brother used to drive me to the um library and he refused to uh take me unless I checked out a quality piece of literature. <laughs> so when I was twelve I got Wuthering Heights. Love it. And it took me about maybe 50 pages. And then, which is not to say that I had not read a lot of good children's literature and sort of, you know, young adult kind of stuff. I loved all the series everybody loves, Wrinkle in Time, Narnia, Anne of Green Gables, Little House. I devoured all of those, but I think Wuthering Heights was my gateway drug. Mm -hmm. And I would say that there hasn't been, of course, there's a great Kate Bush song, but there is not a great Wuthering Heights film, I would say, in the last, 70 years I think was was Merle Oberon like who was in the yeah it
0: was Merle Oberon um Laurence Olivier was Heathcliff and then David Niven was the practical husband
1: (laughs) yeah and and then so it turned out that it was great prep for my future as a film critic because so 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 many books are adapted. I mean, that's the raw material of a huge Hollywood hates originality. So, you know what they do. They love to go <laughs> to the source. And, and, you know, it's also a really good education in the interiority of certain books and how they are essentially unadaptable. Yeah. You know, great books.
0: This has been a really interesting season because a lot of the books that we've been talking about are extremely interior novels that at first glance you might not think would make for good fodder for a screen adaptation because it's so much internal monologue and things like that. And it's been really fascinating to talk to writers and directors and actors about how they've taken what's on the pages of a book and tried to translate it to the screen and, and how you interpret things like that.
1: I actually just did a little profile of Otessa Mashveg, who wrote My Year of Rest and Relaxation. And I went to her house, um, her lovely house in the woods of Pasadena. And she has three books that are currently being made into films, right? So My Year of Rest and Relaxation was optioned by Margot Robbie and directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, the Greek genius who gave us the favorite and the lobster. And she told me, they're really struggling. She also, uh, her novel, Maglou, she's she's also already uh, gotten through production on that. And Eileen, starring Anne Hathaway and Thomas and Mackenzie, has also wrapped. So three novels of hers. And she's not an easy writer to adapt, but she's doing the adaptations herself. And she said, even though I think your my year of rest and relaxation was, came out four years ago, right? She's still struggling to find a way into it, she said, because essentially it's about a woman who goes to sleep for a year. So how do you make that not look like a Warhol movie, right? (laughs) Remember how he used to film people sleeping and that was a, so, I mean, she was really honest. She was just like, she's like, I love Eileen, you know, Anne Hathaway is this great sort of femme fatale and Thomasin McKenzie, who, you know, from last night in Soho and, and Jojo Rabbit, who's a great young New Zealand actress. She said, she's phenomenal, but that's an easier plot, Mm. right? To adapt. So I've also talked to novelists like Britt Bennett. You know, they've been working on The Vanishing Half for a while since that came out a few years ago, one of the bestselling books of whatever it was, 2020. And at one point she wasn't involved. She had no idea what was happening. And then it was, um, now it's an HBO limited series. But that's another sort of complicated one to do. And I tend to actually think that limited series do serve a lot of these things better. Um, yeah. Taylor Jenkins Reid was talking to me about Daisy Jones and the Six you know, um, that was a journey.
0: Hopefully we will do an episode on at some point, whenever, whenever that actually, uh, is released. Um, I'm a huge Taylor Jenkins Reid fan and I think her writing is inherently cinematic. Although I could see how Daisy Jones might be the hardest though, in that the oral history format is probably harder to turn into scenes probably. Uh, But I'm so excited to see any of her work brought to life.
1: And she has tons of options, right? I mean, Malibu Rising would be an easy. And, you know, I think, yeah, there's so many sort of like Tom Perota, Leanne Moriarty, right? Leanne Moriarty, I've reviewed a number of her books. Those are almost screenplays. (laughs) They're so cinematic. They have so much story. But then when they get adapted, I don't think they've had a super successful... A Big Little Lies should never have had a second season. Oh, I'll, I'll no, die on
0: that hill. I agree with you. It was a perfect first season, and then they just sort of lowered they the quality crazy. by making another.
1: <laughs> People loved it, and it did well. And so they thought, okay, but, but books obviously have a natural arc. Same with 13 Reasons Why. It wasn't called 26 Reasons, <laughs> but they went ahead. So like, it's interesting because I thought that Nine Perfect Strangers was kind of an, a failure, an interesting one, but it didn't. Capture the book to me, and sorry, I'm back to Leanne Moriarty. But Big Little Lies also—they changed a lot of the the characters in order to work in these huge actresses, right? Yeah. Like Reese Witherspoon's part was not really very meaty in the book, and so they gave her, yeah. I think I don't even think like the affair that she had. was in the book
0: that, for sure.
1: But I I remember it being different.
0: Yeah, it was.
1: They do have to tweak some of that stuff. But also she was a little shut out of it, I think, in the second season. And that showed as well. I always think the authors should be part of it. But I also realize some authors are like, look, I'm not a screenwriter.
0: Yeah. And I think at a certain point you get torn between are you spending your time on set and giving feedback on scripts? Or are you writing your next book? Um, I mean, I think of someone like E.W.M. Um, Gillian Flint. Like, what's the last book she came out with? Because she has been in Hollywood and she busy. Yeah, she's been doing a lot on the (laughs) industry side of things, which, you know, is great. Like, uh, that's fantastic if that's the direction she wanted to take her career. And uh, I'm not complaining about the material she's been producing. But I think at a certain point, you do sort of end up in a catch 22 as an author as well. So that that's another consideration.
1: Look, I was I was like a baby editorial assistant when Gillian was at the magazine, and I was in the music department, so I was usually going to shows every night and waking up hungover, and she was waking up and writing sharp, sharp objects. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> who's the loser here? But she she really did do it before work, and that still blows my mind, and it's so cool to see you know, to see her out in the world and be like, I, I know her, even though I barely do.
0: <laughs> it's still pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I've never met her, but just even working at the same place where she used to work feels uh, like maybe some of that magic might ru- rub off on us. You're thinking you went from you went from the reviews section to the cover <laughs> and it's about you, Gillian. It's amazing. Oh. Well, um, I have broken up today's show into a couple of categories for us to discuss And I wanted to start with, as you mentioned, there are so many adaptations in Hollywood every year, and we could not possibly cover all of them on this show. But I wanted to kick things off by talking about recent adaptations, things that have premiered within the last one to two years that we think people should seek out, but that we didn't get a chance to do an episode on. So um, Leah, why don't you start off with one of your titles?
1: Okay. I have to be honest. There were certain books last, uh, sorry, certain films last year that I wrote about without really realizing that they were books. (laughs) Like I, I vaguely knew that the last duel was a book, but not really, you know, um, house of Gucci. And I promise I'm not just talking about really Scott projects here solely. Um, Nightmare Alley, I mostly knew as the older film, right? Not as a novel. Right. Um, I didn't, well, I would say Cherry but that I think was a bad novel and a bad movie. <laughs> I would I mean Power of the Dog is probably one of the biggest that was ones, right? On because, my
0: list, yeah.
1: And you know that was a novel that essentially was sort of a cult favorite mm-hmm. until Annie Proulx I think wrote that forward, right? And they kind of re-upped it and they said this is a book worth republishing. And then you know, I Think I believe that's when it came to Jane Campion. I should know because I moderated a panel with the cast and the director and, and talked a little bit about the long and winding road, mm. you know, from that novel to Netflix, however many years later. But it was interesting because I was sitting at the I saw it at the Telluride Film Festival when it premiered, it was I guess I think that was the North American premiere. And I was sitting next to David Canfield, one of our other alumni, and he had read the book and loved it. And he told me that, and we won't spoil it here because we're recommending it in case you haven't seen Power of the Dog, but he said that it very much mimicked the shock of the last Mm. moment of the film was literally like the last, pretty much the last sentence of the book.
0: That's really cool. So it
1: did kind of mirror or parallel that revelation of it. But he also said, even though he knew it was coming, it still hit him very hard. And I'm going to shut up now because if you haven't seen it, I really would hate to wreck
0: it. It's a great rug rug pull out from under you. Yes, <laughs> I find the history of that book so fascinating because people tried to adapt it for years and found All it the
1: wrong cowboys. <laughs> they didn't. Yep. Yeah, found
0: it unadaptable. <laughs> and I mean, when it was first published in the '60s, and part of me wonders if Hollywood at that time, of course, the code had really. Broken down at that point, and they were making more radical films. But I do wonder if they would have been able to do the book justice if they had actually made it when it was first optioned
1: with Dennis Hopper or something. Like, can you can't you picture? It? Well,
0: the first person to option the book was Paul Newman. So really. Ah, I love that. I could definitely see him playing the Cumberbatch role. Um, it, it has a akin to HUD, you know, that kind of yes. prickly barbed wire soul. You could see an older version of HUD if, if he had done it. And I would have loved to see that version if they had gotten it together. <laughs>
1: oh, I would, you know. It's funny, we just, we do these rewatches um, on the website and Darren Franich and I, our TV critic just did Road to Perdition yesterday because we're doing the summer of 2002 and that was Paul Newman's last screen appearance, if we don't count all the Pixar cars, you know, <laughs> vo- voice his acting. His last
0: physical appearance.
1: <laughs> his last physical appearance and, you know, I think he was Oscar nominated for Road to Perdition, but you, the power of a true movie star is still so apparent in that, in that film. And I was just sort of arrested by all the, for lack of a better word, face acting, you Mm. know, Mm. the, the, the nonverbal. And it's interesting because road to perdition was based on a graphic novel, but doesn't have that sort of cheap, you know, thing where none of the emotions are really filled in. It, It doesn't, um, you know what though? I'm sorry. I just remembered a book that I do want to tout as a movie because it kind of disappeared when it came out a few months ago. Yeah. And that is Mothering Sunday. So that was a Graham Swift novel that I reviewed a few years ago for EW and thought was beautiful. It's this it's kind of a novella. Very slim. It's about a guy sort of post-World War One, a very aristocratic sort of young man, and the affair that he has with a housemaid. And they turned it into a film with Josh O'Connor and Olivia Coleman, obviously both from The Crown and Odessa Young, who's a young Australian uh, actress, Colin Firth is in it. I wouldn't say it's a great film, but it really kind of lingered with me in the same way that the book did. It's this very melancholic sort of story of a sexual awakening. And I will also tell you, if you care, it is so nude. (laughs) It It is the nakedest. I mean, Josh and Odessa are... Pretty full frontal for a good portion of the movie, which is such an interesting counterpoint because it has this very sort of decorous period piece sheen to it, right? Mm. You have Olivia, you have Colin Firth, you have all these sort of actors that we think of as British as a tea towel. The Dig is another uh, mm. adaptation of a book, and that was with Ray Fiennes on on Netflix, which also was kind of
0: kind of a, like a sleeper yeah. to me. Speaking of the nude, that is the perfect transition into <laughs> You're welcome. My choice um which is <laughs> um I I mean if you haven't watched it yet, you may have been living under a rock, but um, my my pick is Bridgerton. Um as the romance critic and reader here on the AW team, I really excited from the moment they announced that they were going to turn Bridgerton into a series and Extremely excited that it was the Chandelant team because I think she does Soapy and romance better than almost anyone. And um and also just so thrilled that these mass market romance novels, which there are a lot of gems of, are finally getting their due and and starting to be adapted because I think genre fiction often makes the best adaptations because it is so propulsive and driven by plot and not as interior as a lot of literary fiction.
1: Yeah. it's Not Don DeLillo. So you're going to, yeah. There's a reason they haven't adapted White Noise, even though that's a fantastic, you know, it's a classic.
0: Yeah. So, um, so yeah, Bridgerton is my
1: pick. Well, speaking of nudity, what about, how do you feel about all the Sally Rooney adaptations?
0: Well, I have, sorry to interrupt. No, you're fine. I have to confess that I'm not the biggest Sally Rooney (gasps) fan. Um, because I
1: find I wasn't very nice to her last book, but I did. I did love normal people and and Conversations.
0: I, I just, I just think that especially normal people and Marianne like comes with a degree of shame around sex that I really made me uncomfortable on the page and coming from a world where so much of what I read is really sex positive and privileging female pleasure and desire I just found Marianne's like shame and her sense that she was wrong for like wanting certain things to be choked or and, yeah, yeah I that really got under my skin and I felt like perpetuated maybe some some harmful points of views. It's funny, like Clarissa has called normal people sexy to me, and I would not call normal people sexy. Like it's brooding and emotional and intimate, but I don't know that it's sexy.
1: What I loved, I think, about normal people was first of all, that it came out at the dawn of the pandemic when we had n- nothing else to <laughs> sort of latch on to in a way. But I'm a huge fan, this is a little bit of a seg to a different topic, but I'm a huge fan of adaptations that cast unknown or lesser known I actors do love that. because because I can't imagine that a person doesn't read a book and build a vision in their head, right? So when you get a very well-known star, it's a little bit of a record scratch, right? It's disruptive, yeah, for sure. And I think that when you get a talent like Paul Mezcal, which is not at all how I pictured the character when I read the book, but I found him to be so genuine and compelling. And he had to go through such an emotional journey when he gets clinical depression and and all this stuff. And I could get way more invested because I wasn't watching an actor who I was also seeing, you know, on like the Daily Mail circuit or whatever Mm. the gossip stuff is and didn't have that sort of extracurricular energy around him that would take you away. And obviously he is no longer anonymous but for those purposes sometimes that's really lovely to have because for example the 2013 is it 2013 great gatsby that bos wherman did yes. you know that a big part of that not working for me was the casting
0: i i just don't think a a great adaptation of gatsby has been made and i think no. that in both cases it's casting because in both the case of robert redford and leonardo dicaprio i don't believe he wouldn't get the yes, girl i know
1: Especially not Mia and especially not Carrie. Yeah, it doesn't. I also thought that Le, that Leo and Carrie did not have chemistry, and I didn't believe that he would die for her. I thought Toby Maguire was well cast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that I, I, I don't know. And it's interesting because isn't Gatsby is in the public domain as of like last as year? As of last so, year. So,
0: um, I, I've seen a lot of people advocating for. Muppets Gatsby, where every <laughs> character is a Muppet except for Nick, where Nick is played by a human. And I I'm I would really love to see that. Whoever wants to make that movie, Brian Henson, go for it. <laughs> Get it. Sure. Um, But to go back to your point about unknowns in roles, I mean, that and sort of connect back to Bridgerton for a second. That was another thing that really appealed Mm. to me about Bridgerton that like basically the biggest name attached to that was Julie Andrews. And you only heard her voice. And so you really got to know all of these characters, Penelope and Eloise and Daphne and Simon and Anthony. And then this season, Kate and Edwina like, as the characters, and you didn't have any baggage of who they were as stars or people, and you just got to sort of fall headlong into this lush love story and totally buy into their chemistry as opposed to having any sort of outside forces at play. And I do think casting is one of the most important factors in adaptation because, as you said, people come to the text with all of these preconceived notions of who they've built in their head. And if you get someone that is just doesn't fit the vast majority of people's idea of the character, it can be really hard to overcome that no matter how good your script is.
1: Well, look at Elvis. Look how much pre-release conversation there was about the casting of Austin Butler, because Elvis is obviously, that's a foundational part of our pop culture and there's 9 million opinions and then it was interesting to see the conversation after. Yeah. You know, when, and, and there were people who, who were always offering up They're like, well, Miles Teller looks, you know, way more like him than Austin or this person and Boz was kind of like, look, this is what I wanted. I thought, I thought actually Austin Butler was, I did not like the movie, but I thought he, he was really good in it. I thought Priscilla was miscast.
0: I, I agree. You know,
1: no chemistry and just not a very compelling actress to watch on screen, unfortunately. And you have to believe in the love story. Right. And, um, but also I respect a director's prerogative to know that they're never going to please anyone and that they're going to be inundated with these, you know, the internet is going to come for them and they have a vision. And there's a reason that they're sitting in that little director's chair and we're not.
0: I'm going to shift directions here a little and move on to our next category, which is our all-time favorite adaptations. Mm. I have 3, but why don't you kick us off, Leah?
1: All-time. Oh boy. Okay. I loved Little Women so much and I recently rewatched, is it was it 94?
0: 94, was... yeah.
1: Okay. I watched that one after reviewing the Greta Gerwig, the more recent one. And I, you know, if you want to talk about the female gaze or whatever, <laughs> I, I think, I think that that was so respectfully done and, and kind of beautifully done. And I'm, I am a big fan of that. I just wrote about persuasion last week, which I found to be blasphemous, the <laughs> Dakota Johnson Netflix one. And I, but on the other hand, I really enjoyed Emma, which was Autumn Wilde um who is mostly known for directing music videos had not made a proper narrative film before, you know, she gets Anya Taylor Joy to 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 play Emma and that it's she really to me she walked the tightrope of sort of updating, refreshing the idea of Austin um and being a little subversive with it without I should say peeing on the grave of <laughs> somebody of an artist, you know, that, that means a lot to a lot of people. Um Call me by your name Mm. for sure. Um, An absolutely gorgeous adaptation. Atonement.
0: Atonement is one of mine.
1: And Ian McEwen has had a lot of adaptations of of varying degrees of quality. And he's um, everything is devastating in most McEwen novels. (laughs) And so you have to sort of prepare yourself for that. But one little subset that I want to get into before we go further is the um, bad book that becomes a better movie. Yes. And I have a few under that category. One of them being Bridges of Madison County, mm. which is obviously elevated by the acting of, of Meryl Streep and Clint Eastwood, right? The notebook, which I didn't read, but <laughs> I, I thought was a much, it is a better film, <laughs> but it's a better film. Devil Wears Prada was a freaking terrible book and obviously a very charming, uh, movie. I would call it a classic and feel that that is fair. Um, So, yeah, I think it's American Psycho was a really interesting adaptation because it had Mary Heron, a female director, with Christian Bale doing something really transgressive and weird and kind of making it work. So, yeah, I'm gonna stop there.
0: Well, so, oh, room, oh, room, room. Yeah, so mine are Atonement, as you mentioned. I think that might be one of the greatest feats of adaptation ever in terms of how it evokes the act of reading in a lot of mm. what it's doing and the ways it plays with narrator, which of course is true to the book as well. And, uh, without spoiling it, like the way it pulls the rug out from under you with narration, I think is more effective on the page in terms of what it accomplishes is, is more astonishing to realize you've been reading one version of a story versus another. Had. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And- yes, by Saoirse, you've been had. Was that her first major yeah. role, Saoirse Ronan? It was, right? It was. Before The Lovely Bones, which is a bad attitude.
0: <laughs> but I, I just, the score, the way the score incorporates the typewriter and sounds of writing into ah, it. The fact that's right. that that incredible love scene is in a library.
1: <laughs> Bibliosexual, is that what we should call <laughs> yeah. it? It's funny. I actually, um, you know, because I, I wrote a cover story on uh, Kristen Stewart for uh, Spencer. And I spoke to the costume designer, Jacqueline Duran, and I had to stop for a moment and just give her credit for the green, <laughs> the green dress. Helmet. Uh, that woman.
0: And I loved what you said about devastation in Ian McEwan novels, because I think perhaps that film captures it the best of any of them like it's one of my favorite films but i can only watch it every few years because i'm like (laughs) destroyed for a week after watching it
1: (laughs) the injustice it was so fixable that's what always happens in ebq and things you're like man it's it's always about human error and human ego, and British repression,
0: and, preventing people from mm-hmm. speaking up.
1: <laughs> yes, and you just you want to reach through the screen. It's like when I when I was in whatever, however old I was, and I saw Baz Norman's Romeo and Juliet, and the way that he filmed it, I was like, oh, I think Juliet's going to pull through. Like <laughs> it seems like she was so close to waking up before you know before Romeo took the took the poison or whatever it was and like and, and it's funny now because there's a novel coming out this fall that I believe it's just called Juliet and it's like what if she did make it right or is it a play it's a musical is doing it's a Broadway musical. musical
0: it's called and Juliet yeah
1: and ampersand Juliet yeah. or whatever it is <laughs> and Juliet and and I was like you know what I like that someone's pursuing that path because I always wondered yeah and Bill Shakespeare is not returning
0: my calls so I don't know <laughs> what his plans might have been the for seances aren't working um not well enough <laughs> and then my other two i love that you mentioned emma because one of mine is um emma thompson's uh, and Lee's 1995 (gasps) sense and sensibility yeah that is actually i know this is almost blasphemy to say but i actually think that film is better than the book because i do i love austin's writing so much but i think and Emma Thompson captures this. Sense and Sensibility is such a melancholy, sad novel. And in so many ways about the horrible choices women have to make because of like, money and access. And Eleanor very much gets her happy ending But on the page, I feel like Marianne is worn down into accepting Colonel Brandon. And basically everyone in the town's like, you should marry him. And so finally she's just like, okay, I still love Willoughby, but whatever, sure. And the movie obviously is not that. And again, coming back to casting, I think that's because of Alan Rickman. Like, obviously, obviously, how are you not going to fall in love with that? I think Thompson... It has done better than probably any other screenwriter at adapting Austin's words. And in a sense, was that her
1: first Oscar Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. for screenwriting? yeah, right?
0: She'd been nominated for acting before, but that was the first time she won.
1: Cause she has one for acting and one for correct for screenwriting. You know, another thing, another book that we should say um, back when I was in my young, young down market days before Wuthering Heights, I did read the Godfather mm. and was properly scandalized. And that is sort of a supermarket trash book as well, <laughs> and of course became one of the most revered films of all time. And that was due, I think, in part to some very strategic editing of the story itself, mm. certain storylines that were removed or altered. But but the book does not have the the emotional depth at all of, of the mm. films, right? So that was that. I think was more of a jumping off for Francis Ford Coppola, but he clearly saw something much bigger and more resonant yeah. In a, in a kind of a universal story that's very propulsive, like you said, and, and kind of like is made to be adapted because it's exterior enough in the, you know, the events and the emotions. But he found depths where there maybe weren't some.
0: Uh, my last one is throwing it way back to the Humphrey Bogart version of the Maltese Falcon. Um
1: Ooh, classy
0: choice. I really love Dashiell Hammond and Raymond Chandler and hard-boiled fiction and think that they consistently make for great filmmaking, but I think that that Maltese Falcon adapted and directed by John Huston is a perfect encapsulation of what that style of fiction is. Bogart is the movie star who was made to live in that mm-hmm. world and he inhabits it so perfectly and mary astor is such a perfect femme fatale partly because you might not ever expect her to play the femme fatale so that for me is an all-timer and it's been adapted many times It, like i think that version of the maltese falcon was the fourth adaptation of it and there have been other since but that to me is is the gold standard those Maltese wings are tired <laughs> well you know it's
1: funny because wasn't speaking of bird movies that aren't really about birds um three days of the condor was six days of the condor oh, right really? a, right the novel um and I didn't read the novel but I very much enjoyed three days of the condor and it's you know in in that sort of 70s new cinema kind of thriller mode but it's it's interesting too what you say about Maltese falcon because noir has echoed down so many decades now that it's Sometimes the, the kind of the OGs of the genre can feel a little pat and cliched because they've been milked so much. Yeah. So it kind of is a testament to the strength of the movie stars and the filmmaking that that stuff can still feel fresh. You know, the same way that you watch All About Eve and it doesn't feel like a period piece, even though it obviously is in black and white and it is, it has real, Betty Davis feels like a real person mm. still. To to me, you know, her emotions are real. Her feelings about being a woman are real. Her feelings about aging are still relevant, you know? And and I think there are certain book adaptations and books that you almost need a few decades to see if they do hold up because you and I, I'm sure, have both gone back to stuff that we liked when we were really young and you were like, oh, nope, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't actually very good. I was just young and I, you know, and I, I hadn't seen a lot and it appealed to me in a sort of immature way, but it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. And some of those films really do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking about not necessarily bad might be a strong word, but bad makes the books that make great movies. One of my all time favorite films, and it's super problematic. And I don't want to get into that can of worms today because we'll be here for an hour talking about it. But Gone with the Wind is one of my all time favorite films. And I've read the book a ton of times, too. And I do think that in terms of epic scale and a piece of cinema, and frankly, improving on the racism. (laughs) Um, It is a stronger film than it is a novel.
1: See, yeah, I read Gone with the Wind, I think, when I was really young, a little too young to understand Mm -hmm. it. I don't think I was in high school yet. And I also, and and again, as you say, the frames of reference change so much over the years. There's a lot of stuff with female roles that I didn't realize like you know I wrote about the new Top Gun and then I rewatched the old Top Gun and I was like man this Kelly McGillis role sucks (laughs) she's supposed to she's supposed to be like the instructor and the cool lady and she's got her PhD in astrophysics or whatever and she's just a girl waiting around for a guy Mm -hmm. like like oh what a bummer and and again that was the lens of seeing it you know not as a child and being like man never mind (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. There was no top gun book, I should make clear unless there's <laughs> something I missed at the yeah.
0: Well, we are going to take a little break before we continue talking about adaptations. So go ahead and get your bookmark out and come back and join us in a few. Wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at SouthernLiving.com/slash Biscuits and Jam. Okay, welcome back. We are moving on to now a segment I like to call Better Off Red, aka Adaptations That Are Terrible of Good Books, so you should just stick to the book. And I will start with one that really breaks my heart. It was a little one that came out December of last year, um, was VOD, so kind of snuck under the radar. And that is The Hating Game, which was a novel by Sally Thorne. And that novel is, to me, a perfect rom-com. Like, it is... Funny, it has incredible banter. It's extremely sexy, and I found the film adaptation uh, starring Lucy Hale to be exceedingly disappointing. Um, it just first of all the stars really didn't have chemistry, which is a huge problem in a rom-com, and then it sliced out some of the best parts of the books. Like it got into their relationship too quickly and cut out all of the like hate of The Hating Game and the reasons they disliked each other. And it just sucked all the tension right out of it. So recommend reading The Hating Game, but maybe not watching the film.
1: (laughs) I have a couple. I believe we already mentioned A Wrinkle in Time, but that book to me was magical. Mm. And I actually really want to reread it because I just remember being completely transported by Madeline Leingang, by all of her books, and that movie was the worst screensaver I have seen <laughs> in my life. And I think Ava DuVernay is brilliant. I love so much of the filmmaking that she's done. That was just so dead on arrival, and it had so much talent in it. You have Oprah and Reese Witherspoon, and you, you know, and it it just completely missed. And another book that did that for me on the screen again, with a ton of talent was where'd you go Bernadette? Mm. I was like, where did you go? Because like Richard Linklater directing, you have Kate Blanchett. And that was an epistolary novel, obviously, you know, you had the, or emails, you know, whatever it was, it was sort of this, this patchwork of, of communications and whatever on the page. So that was a challenge, I'm sure. But it was supposed to, sometimes I feel like one of the hardest things to translate is a caper. Mm you know, or something that's a little satirical and it can become very arch and very empty. Yes. And it gets drained of anything that feels like real human emotion. And if there's no stakes, you can invest. Right. And so the movie wasn't so much terrible as just, it felt dead. Mm. It didn't, it didn't really come to life. And it's not the same as let's say like a fantastic mess like Bonfire of the Vanities or Island of Doctor Moreau. Like they literally have an entire podcast about the making of Bonfire of the Vanities it's and a how good that one. was like right and how I haven't actually I've had a lot of people tell me that I should listen to it because it's 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 so fun. But and then there's something like The Goldfinch, which I actually kind of enjoyed the adaptation and I think it ran on HBO at like three something hours. Right, it was not. I forget how long it was and they had, you know, that's the Donna Tart novel on it. They cast um, Nicole Kidman and Finn Wolfhard. I always feel porny when I say his name, no matter what. (laughs) Um, But that was, I would say not successful, but just, but interesting. It was an interesting Mm. failure, probably, you know, and and that was made for streaming. So the sort of like the, what would you call it? The bar was lower. Like, I tend to think of films a little differently when they're, when they're, streaming, you know, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, HBO, Max, whatever, if I'm writing about it, I'm either telling you to go to a theater and end up paying what 70, 80, a hundred dollars for parking and snacks and babysitters <laughs> and whatever else it takes versus literally the bar is, you know, should into you turn this account.
0: A- on on Friday night? Yes, Uh, yeah. Right. I have one that's kind of similar to what you said about the goldfinch that not bad but just not necessarily successful and I actually really love the movie um it's just not the book and that is Ella Enchanted by Gail Carson Levine that was my favorite book as a child I didn't know that was a book it's it's an incredible (laughs) book it's a retelling of Cinderella it's an amazing YA book and it's one of those books where it's called Ella Enchanted but even like not until like halfway through the book do you realize it's a Cinderella retelling. I don't know, maybe it's more obvious, but I was 10. And that was like a gateway drug to loving romance for me. And it's a really great fairy tale and story of female empowerment and Ella overcoming this curse. And they made it into a film with Anne Hathaway and Hugh Dancy, which Hugh Dancy has never looked hotter than he does in this, this movie. But it bears zero resemblance to the story of the book. Like it pretty much eliminates the like cinderella connection the only thing it has in common with the book is the names of the characters and the fact that ella and prince char like sort of fall for each other and that ella has this curse of having to do whatever she is told but then other than that it completely diverges and has some weird adventure story and a dastardly king who is not in the book and Anne Hathaway sings Somebody to Love by Queen at a fairy's party. Oh, boy. And, I, like, as a fun romp, it's very entertaining, but it bears zero resemblance to the book. And if you loved the book, it was, it's a very disappointing experience in that regard. And to enjoy the movie, I have to pretend like it is not an adaptation of this novel that I loved.
1: Well, you know, I just remembered another one, actually, which... The, uh, and we could probably spend, uh, we could probably start our own podcast about Stephen King adaptations, but the modern it mm. and the sequel, I was terrified of that book. Like, I, I mean, it ruined clowns for many people I know, <laughs> and also, and also, you know, drains and many other things. But it was weird. It's always strange to me when a movie piles on sort of like blood and jump scares and then utterly fails to actually scare you. Mm. And the it adaptation, especially the second one, the one that came out maybe two years ago, the sequel. Yeah. Was just, oh God, I just wanted, like, I felt trapped in the theater. I just didn't like, it was, it was so deeply unscary. Mm. It was, it was kind of bizarre. And I, it was. I remember it being a little offensive. They they, they killed two gay men in the first scene for kind of like
0: no just reason. It, it,
1: yeah, Oof. yeah, and it just it just it felt like it really missed. And I know those movies did make money, and they had a lot of movie stars we love, including alumni of Atonement, <laughs> our our man James McAvoy, and it, and Jessica Chastain too. And like I just was like, this is a lot of energy to expend on what should be a gimme mm. kind of. And I don't know how. I don't know how you messed it up so bad,
0: but it also, but it made a ton of money. So. Yeah. I feel like that happens with a lot of his books. Yeah. I mean like the shining very famously is incredibly divisive in whether or not it is a successful adaptation of his novel. Some people love it. Some people hate it.
1: I, I, well, I love it, but I can't watch it now without thinking of Shelley Duvall being abused basically Mm -hmm. on set. And, and it, it has some sort of extra textural stuff now that kind of bums me out. Mm. But those images stay with you, though. Those they things. sure do. Oh, and I forgot Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Ooh. That's a very, that's a great adaptation. It is. And pretty faithful. Yeah. Um, uh, very like, yes. Uh, I love British, that one very in British. the right way <laughs> they didn't they, they make it a little they don't sex it up which I really appreciate mm. even though it has some sexy people in it they they make you still kind of work and pay attention I don't feel like you can multitask when you're watching Tinker Tailor and that's what I want from a Lucario adaptation right
0: <laughs> well that is a great opportunity to segue to our final segment which is paging Hollywood And this is Um, (laughs) books that we love and think would make great screen adaptations. Um, So why don't you kick us off, Leah?
1: I am still waiting for a good Ann Patchett movie. Mm. It sure wasn't Bel Canto. (laughs) And I would love to see Commonwealth, which was one of my favorite novels of the last 10 years, or The Dutch House, which was also great. I'd love to see um, the Immortalists, the Chloe Benjamin novel from a couple years ago. I think that's very cinematic. I love that they tried to make Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections at HBO, and they had Noah Bombach, and they had like all the talent: Maggie Gyllenhaal, huge cast. I had a friend who was working on it who told me it was so terrible, it was unsalvageable, which I kind of makes me laugh. But Hundred Years of Solitude, right? They've still never mm. made that. Never made Catcher in the Rye. Never made Brave New World. Never made Secret History, even though they did The Goldfinch.
0: Brave New World. They made a TV series a year or two ago that was not oh, successful. That's what they did
1: because they did Foreign High. Yeah, yeah, with
0: okay. the hot um, vicar from Grantchester, whose name is escaping me at this moment.
1: Oh, James. His name is James. Yeah, one of and the British James. which is which is which is a trivia that I appreciate. Um, and a visit from the Goon Squad. Mm. I mean, I'm so curious to see if they could ever figure out a way to film that you know jennifer egan that's her that's her pulitzer and that's probably one of the best-selling literary novels of the last 15 years and i don't know whether it is filmable but i'd like to see someone try
0: for some reason i i thought that jd salinger's estate expressly forbid adapting catcher in the rye Maybe I'm wrong. I
1: I don't think it does anymore. And I think we had we had that um Nicholas Holt movie where he played Salinger, right? That no one really my Salinger year, was mm. that what it was called? Yeah, I think so. Um and no one you can hear the enthusiasm in both our voices for that one. I didn't <laughs> see it. I don't know what happened with it. I am really curious because I know they also bought The Girls by Emma Klein, mm. but that was a Scott Rudin purchase. So uh, I don't know what the what the future of it happen? is
0: right? Well, mine are sort of similar to Bridgerton in the way that they're taking like a whole world and series and creating it into a show. I would like to see them do that with Sarah McLean's romance novels. I think she is one of the best authors of romantic historical fiction. There is her books are fiercely feminist. They would kind of be the anti-Bridgerton a little bit in that they're all like sort of taboo and gritty and sexy like one of her series i love most is all it's for people who've been sort of exiled from society who own a uh, casino a gaming hell in regency england and the adventures and crimes that happen there and then uh one of her more recent series the bare knuckle bastards was about a group of criminal Covent Garden, Underworld, Ring, and those were all the heroes, so I would love to see those brought so, to like, life. like Covent Garden Fight Club, basically? Yeah, like Covent Garden Fight Club, like <laughs> <laughs> it would be really cool, and I think a different take on period romance, because it is this world that we were so used to the drawing rooms and the ballrooms and all of that kind of thing. And I love that. But I think it'd be really cool to see this underworld, um, because that was very much a part of that time. And it doesn't necessarily get talked about all that much. Um, And then I'm very obsessed with Chanel Clayton's Cuba novels but particularly next year in havana which was the first in the series from a few years ago it was a hello sunshine book club pick and i believe that they have optioned it but i don't know what is going on with it beyond that but it's a really beautiful story of this girl whose grandmother dies and her grandmother wants her ashes spread in her homeland of cuba and it was from that brief period in our history where americans could travel back to cuba um, a few years ago. And I went. <laughs> I slipped in. I Thank love you, Jet it. Blue. Like months before it
1: was closed again. Ugh. Yeah,
0: It's about her going back with her grandmother's ashes. But but it's a dual POV book. So it's her story and her learning about her grandmother's past and all these things she never knew. And then also that grandmother story like happening in real time during the onset of the Cuban Revolution. And it's I think it would just make for a really invigorating, gripping, romantic film or television series. Um, So Hollywood, call us.
1: (laughs) I'm curious what you think, because I feel like there's really been a sea change in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 10 or so years. Like obviously you had Oprah's book club and that was kind of all powerful. Mm. And now it's sort of, there's sort of a diaspora of it where you have, you know, Reese's picks and you have the Today Show and I feel like that has a number of, of, of actors. Kerry Washington has optioned a lot of stuff um, where there's a certain power to the name, you know, the the celebrity name. And it seems to fast track a lot of this stuff, the same way that Brad Pitt's production company Plan B has gotten all these major black films made in part because he has some leverage in the industry. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's how you get, you know. Selma and Twelve Years a Slave and Last Black Man in San Francisco and and Minari and all of these films about people of color that because you have a you know a big white male movie star helping to sort of push it onto the screen and when I spoke to Brad Pitt about it he said yes that that's really hugely important to me obviously but he said for everyone that even I can get made there are ten projects I love that I cannot get off the ground mm. because of sort of obviously we know we're living in it it's Marvel's world and we're just living in it and. <laughs> you know, the space for adult dramas is very small. And a lot of people, it's a little bit of a rat pile that people have to fight their way to the top of to fit that very narrow number of films that aren't franchise or for children, or some other sequel to a previous property, you know, and I think the exception to that, is these actors who can kind of get these books in front of people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely think that the book clubs are where the power at right now. And if you're an author and you want your book to be optioned, the, the greatest likelihood of that occurring is it being one of these selections. I mean, my debut novel's coming out next summer and I'm definitely like that would be creeping in Reese's DMs that already. Would, yeah, like that would be a great turn of events for me personally if that were to occur. It is just the reality of the situation. I mean, in the same way that we're experiencing this quote-unquote peak TV moment, and it's hard to choose what you want. Books have kind of always been that. Like if you look at how many new books release every Tuesday, it is staggering. And that doesn't, that's just traditionally published novels. That doesn't include indie publishers, self-publishing, the, all the stuff that goes on Kindle every week. So there, there's a huge amount of stuff out there for people it's to be. It's a fire hose that you have to put your mouth on Yeah, much. and so I can I understand why producers are looking for somebody to do that work for them and choose the things that, they should be looking at and should be reading. Um, So it makes complete sense to me that these book clubs have the power to make these things happen because somebody, people crave curation because there is so much content.
1: Well, did you read? I read some lovely news yesterday that small bookstores have been thriving in the last two years. I did
0: see that and I am thrilled with that. Wasn't
1: that lovely? And it's funny because and they said partly because people need curation and it was funny because I was on a flight somewhere between New York and LA I forget which direction but there was a girl next to me looking through all these books and I was like I read books and so I asked her and she and she works for CAA in the books department in auctioning stuff and she was pretty young and I was like that actually is a lot of power yeah that she has you know, and, it, and and it's sort of whimsical. I remember that um, this book by Nicole dennis Ben came out a couple years ago called Patsy. And it's about a Caribbean immigrant who can't, can't be a lesbian at home. And her daughter turns out to be trans. And it's written in Patois, part of the book. It's not an easy read. And to go back to David Canfield, our, our previous books editor he was talking to Jenna Bush Hager about something else and was just like, you know what's great, Patsy? I think she asked him what he was reading and it became a A book club pick. Yeah. And I don't know if he was the sole source of that, but I was like,
0: is it that sort of arbitrary? That's even part of what we do. Like um, this novel, Roomies, by Christina Loren that I loved and um, put on our top 10 romance novels of the year five years ago, which has been in development as a film now almost since it was released. But Jenna Dewan read my review of it and she optioned it. And then they've been working on it ever since. Shut up. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, we at EW, we may not be CAA agents, but like our reviews and telling people to read things and bringing them to the forefront can also do some of that work. And so I love that we get to play a small role in like, hey, adaptation is really cool. And also this book is great. So you should make it into something.
1: Well, I'm happy to be a handmaiden for that cause. <laughs> not, not 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 a Margaret Atwood kind of handmaiden, but just a small cog.
0: Yeah, and I guess... Uh... My last one is, I just want more Sarah Waters adaptations. I love her fiction so
1: oh, much. Yes.
0: And I I know that Fingersmith both had a uh, miniseries and then the Korean version of it, The Handmaiden.
1: Which I put on my top 10 uh, movies of the year. How, what was that, four years ago, I five think years so. ago?
0: And I had no idea what
1: I was walking into. I didn't realize that it was, that. was a Korean film, that it was an adaptation of, of, of her novel. And Woo! And I I wanna say that 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 Handmaiden has been on streaming. It's on Netflix or Amazon or something, and it's a high recommend. It is yeah. wild.
0: I yeah, I love her books and they are like the perfect mix of sort of that interior emotionality, but then they also are usually thrillers as well. And um And pretty sexy. So sexy. So yeah, Hollywood, just adapt all all Sarah Waters. And Sarah, publish another book soon, please.
1: I mean, I know you wonder about that because she doesn't like small books.
0: No, and paying guests was what five, six years ago now. So
1: yeah. we'll see. I know, and I know lots of novelists that obviously they they thrived in the pandemic, and other people were like, "Sorry, I'm yeah, I have no juice for you. I have nothing to give."
0: <laughs> Amazing. Well, that was everything we had to discuss today. Thank you so much for joining us, Leah, and and talking about all these books and adaptations.
1: Thank you so much. I, we've said adaptation so many times. I want to talk about the film adaptation now, but which is based on a Susan Orlean article in I the love, New Yorker, right? Love it. But look at, I mean, killers of the flower moon also came from a piece in the new yorker so Mm. there's so many paths yeah
0: you can do plays you you can do articles graphic novels it's not just pure novels that are source material there's there's so many ways to work within this art form and we've really enjoyed celebrating it here on the first season of screen after reading and hopefully we'll be able to bring you more in the future This was the season finale of Screen After Reading Season 1. If you've liked what you heard, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends, tell strangers, tell anyone you can think of, because we'd love to be able to bring you more episodes taking you behind the scenes of how great books are brought to the screen. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me, at The Maureen Lee. This episode of Screen After Reading is hosted by Maureen Lee Linker, produced by Maureen Lee Linker, Clarissa Cruz, Chanel Johnson, and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.